and welcome. <laughs> welcome to the to the cat stream with a side of Pastor Mike. Uh, I was gonna say pastoral, but Pastor Mike asking uh, answering your guys' questions. Sorry, I threw myself off with my goofy cat introduction here. Uh, she just jumped up on the chair next to me, and I thought I'd share her with y'all. There's Moxie. Yep. I wish that was all first. She's actually a bit too chubby. Anyway, here's what I'm doing today. Uh, Q&A, answering your guys' questions. And I'm going to launch into the first question that I actually got from the from Facebook, from my, my public uh, Facebook page. And the question is about the rapture. So I told the people on Facebook, I'll take one question from this Facebook um you know, comment section, and I'll, I'll make it the first question I answer in the live stream. The rest are coming from the Q&A that happens in the live chat. So ask your questions now. We're going to take a, a maximum of like 20 questions today. You can start putting your questions in now. We're going to gather those, and then I'll be answering them. Um, assuming I can find my phone. Ah, there it is. I <laughs> got it. Um, now, the question that, that was voted on the most, that had the most likes, so I'm going to go ahead and prioritize that one, was about the rapture. And... This question is from, actually a couple people asked it, but I'll, I'll read the one from um, Dan Law, who says, Hello, Pastor Mike, what's your views on the rapture or being caught up? I really would like to know your thoughts. I must admit, I agree with most of your theology. Not all, but most. God bless you, brother. And uh, I'm fine with that. I don't think that we have to agree on everything. Now, the topic of the rapture is particularly um, complicated quickly. So I'm going to offer a couple points for clarity. First off, very plain, what I think is true, and I want to study this more, and maybe one day I'll make a little research project on, on end times. Actually, it would be a big research project. And I'll deal with the rapture and some other things. But my view is this, that uh, Revelation is speaking about future things. It talks about the second coming of Christ. It does talk about a future thing that has not yet happened. A lot of future things that haven't happened yet. I do think there probably is a real tribulation. I, that is my understanding of the text. And I do think that the rapture doctrine, as I understand it, is solidly biblical, even though it is very much rejected by a lot of people today. So let me give you some caveats now to explain what I mean by that. When I say rapture, I do not mean... I um, think that pre-tribulational, mid-trib, or post-trib rapture is absolutely clear. I'm not sure on the timing, personally. I'm not sure. And forgive me, there's things I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. But here's one reason why I think that there is a rapture event, a time when we are caught up to be with the Lord, and it's because it's just so plainly taught here in the text of Scripture. Let me uh, adjust that. Okay. So here's in uh, 1 Thessalonians 4. This is where Paul talks about this topic. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Okay, so th this is a statement about the future of those who have died. Christians who have died. And he wants to talk about their future. So he's going to be talking about the resurrection and the final state and all that kind of stuff. And he says that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. God will bring with him, and this is talking about the second coming, that in the second coming, Jesus is coming back with those who have died. And then that leads naturally to the question of what about those who are alive at the coming of Christ? For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. So they're going to descend with him, but they're also going to rise. So I, I think this is when, my understanding, they come, uh, they, they are uh, with him in, in heaven to die now. You're going to be present with the Lord immediately. And at the coming of Christ, they'll, they'll get their new bodies. So they're not embodied, they're disembodied temporarily. Then they get their new bodies at the coming of Christ. And then at that point, it says in verse 17, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up. And that's that phrase. This is where we get the word rapture. We're caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I take this as a pretty plain statement, a plain teaching. Like this is going to happen in the future. Jesus comes back and we are caught up we are given, um, we don't, so they die and then they're given their resurrected new glorified bodies. We just sort of are transitioned from being alive into those new bodies. I think that's what happens. 
Now, this is actually where the word rapture comes from. It's this word caught up here in the uh, in the Greek, uh, harpazo in the Greek. But in when you go to the Latin, you get rapturus, and then we have rapture, the rapture doctrine. Now, the rapture doctrine is more than just the idea that, G, that we're caught up together to be with the Lord. I'm only going to affirm that element. Oh, we're caught up, and it's at the coming of Christ. The argument over whether it's pre, uh, mid, or post-trib, I'm not settled on, but I do affirm there is a rapture coming. And I think it's just the most plain, obvious reading of the text. I'm sure there's arguments against it. Maybe one day I would change my mind. It's not something I intend to do. Uh, not like I'm not planning on it. I mean, I am convinced that this is the case, but I recognize that I haven't really heard all the arguments on all the sides. Um, I've tried to read and be paying attention to the various people who disagree on this topic, you know, different, the preterist, the partial preterist view, the that then I have the futurist view of Revelation. I've looked at some of these different views, and I am still convinced of the futurist view. So Sarah Nordberg has a question. Oh, and by the way, Sarah, before I go to your question, a uh, quick couple announcements. My new schedule, my new weekly schedule, this is the plan. It doesn't mean it'll be this way every week, but this will be the normal week. Okay, so the normal week is going to be Mondays at 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, right? That's 3 p.m. Central, 4 p.m. in New York or Eastern Time. And uh, that, at that time, Mondays, I'll be doing a live stream of the Mark series, going verse by verse through Mark. So that's my normal Bible teaching. It's important to me that I have regular Bible teaching on my channel as part of my ministry. Then on Fridays, I'm going to make this a weekly thing. You guys have given me feedback that you like these Q&As and that it ministers to you. And uh, I'm listening to that. And we're going to see how we can use that maximally. So every Friday is going to be, you know, except for weird weeks where we can't do it. A Q&A at 1 p.m. this time, Pacific Standard Time. I don't know what time it is where you're at right now, but it'll be at 1 p.m. in California, and it'll be uh, whatever time it is where you are. That'll be a regular thing. Now, for these Q&As, I'm taking the questions from the live chat. I can only handle, like, maximum 20. Um, but I'm also uh, asking this. I want to have a name for the, for the Friday thing that we're doing, like some sort of a, a name, something to call it. And I don't know what... a a good catchy name would be, especially for being online. Like I want to be strategic and reach the largest number of people we can with this ministry. So I'm asking you guys to give me ideas. What should I call the Friday thing that I'm doing? Friday Q&A. Um, <clears throat> so <laughs> I had some interesting suggestions from my mods, some great ones and some really funny ones as well. And so basically I'm asking you for your suggestions. What do you think would be a good name that for a viewer who's never seen the Friday Q&A, um, when they see it in, you know, with this title, in the thumbnail or in the, in, the, in the description, in the title of the video, when they see that, it just invokes interest. It causes people to go, hmm, I'm, I'm curious, what's that about? And it would draw those, those kinds of people so we can minister to them. Put your, your suggestions in the comment section. You can help me name my, uh, my, my Friday weekly series. All right, so Sarah Nordberg asks this. A friend of mine believes that Mark 16, verses 17 through 18, is a sign for true believers today because Jesus also sent the 70 besides the apostles to signs and wonders. Can you help me to help him? Okay, let's look at this passage, Mark 16. And just so you know, I'll give you a quick answer today. But when I get there in my Mark series, I'm in Mark uh, 10 right now. But when I get there in my Mark series to Mark 16, I'm going to be dealing with these things in more detail. So... Mark 16, verses um, 17 and 18. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents um, with their hands. And if they drink in any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So here's a, a few thoughts and I have several thoughts. And, and some of this might be new to some of you. So let me reference ahead of time. I have a series called Evidence for the Bible. It's a whole playlist of like 20 videos. And in that series, I talk about how we got our canon of scripture, and I talk about supposed um, changes of the Bible over time. And one of the tough passages is, is Mark 16, these last, I think it's 12 verses in Mark. And I talk about it in detail. My current thinking is that these last 12 verses in Mark are not actually original in Mark, that Mark actually ended earlier. And this is not new, okay? For those who... Even if you just go to whatever Bible you already read, if you have any footnotes at all, I guarantee you there's like a 99.9% .9 chance in your very footnotes in the Bible you've been reading your whole life, it says in Mark 16, hey, this doesn't show up uh, in the earliest manuscripts. So there's a reason for that. Um, it, th this is very possibly um, what, what's happening here is Mark ends rather abruptly 
uh, it ends with let me give you there we go. It would end with verse 8. Uh, and they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. And it may have just ended abruptly right there. And here, as you see in the ESV, some of the earliest manuscripts don't include verses 9 through 20. So all this stuff, where does it come from? Where does this content if it's not original? Well, what it appears to come from is it appears to come from the other gospel accounts in the book of Acts. So that so that people were saying, well, we want to we want to have a a longer ending to the story. So we're going to gather content from those other authoritative biblical sources and we're going to pull it together. That may be what's happened. If that's the case, then that means that this Mark 16 passage simply is more like early church commentary and not um, direct quote, you know, something authoritative from Jesus. That's what that would mean. Now, that is what I think is the case. But let me answer it <clears throat> alternately, let's say that you are convinced, and many are, that Mark 16 in this whole section is absolutely authoritative, and and please refer to my video. I know that that can be upsetting the first time you hear that. It shouldn't upset your faith. It shouldn't cause you to doubt the Bible in any way, shape, or form. Like this, something the enemy uses to attack people, but uh, an informed Christian is a is is a firm Christian, <laughs> so this should you should be fine if you get the, get all the details. But let's suppose that Jesus did say this. And that this is something I need to then interpret and say, how does this apply in my life today? Well, let me read it with that in mind. So whoever believes and is baptized uh, will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. So first off, who are the signs accompanying? Well, it's those who believe. A natural question is, does it accompany everyone who believes or does it accompany some of those who believe? And that totally changes how you read the passage. So if I think it accompanies every Christian, then every Christian is to cast out demons and they have to do all the all the things the whole list every christian is to speak in tongues every christian is to pick up serpents with their hands every christian if they drink deadly poison that won't hurt them and every christian will lay their hands on the sick and the sick will recover now it's that last one that i want to focus on for a second if snake handling churches were healing as many sick as they were handling snakes then i would take them more seriously but because they focus on picking up serpents with their hands, which is a which is a gimmick uh, that in 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 some like Eastern countries has been going on for thousands of years, where you have snake handlers, right? And this is this is not what it's really talking about. It's not talking about oh, go be snake handlers, deliberately put yourself in harm's way. I, let me come back to that in a second. But basically, if you're going to say that some of these things every Christian's supposed to do, then you better say that all of these things every Christian's supposed to do. And I don't know any Christian that has a continual and constant gift of healing where whoever they lay their hands on gets, gets, uh, you know, recovered, gets better. They get be better from sickness and illness. If that, if that's you, you better be in every hospital every day, just going from ward to ward to ward, uh, providing healings. Like don't do it in some special meeting, <laughs> go do it in the hospital where the sick are. So yeah, that, but nobody's does this and we shouldn't expect it as Christians. Even, even this next Sunday, uh, right? I should say Monday for you guys, when I do the live stream, I'm going to talk about examples of lack of healing amongst even the apostles, which is kind of a big deal. So that's one argument against that you could help your friends. So if you're, if you're not doing this, if you're not laying your hands on the sick and seeing them healed. Okay. Well then if it's not every, every Christian, then it would only be some Christians. Some of those who believe you will see this within the church. Somewhere within the church, you will see casting out demons, speaking in tongues. Somewhere within the church, you will see um, picking up serpents. We'll come back to that in a second. And, you know, being saved from deadly poisons, um, laying their hands on the sick and then recovering. And in that case, the answer is, yeah, and it's an affirmative. You know, we have lots of accounts of this sort of thing in Christianity throughout the church. It would only be in some cases. But let me now come back to taking up serpents. Okay, they will pick up serpents with their hands. This is probably not what snake handlers do at all right? Just like drinking deadly poison, you would never intentionally drink deadly poison. Remember when Jesus was being tempted by Satan, by Satan, and it was Satan's idea for him to cause himself to enter harm's way by jumping off of the temple or off of this mountaintop. And there he is, he's going to jump off and Satan's like, well, God has promised he will not allow your foot to dash against a stone. And so Jesus says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. So we have from the words of Jesus, the idea that even a promise for protection does not apply when you put yourself in harm's way on purpose. So it would only be you pick up serpents as in what Paul did in the book of Acts when he's on a missionary journey. This is again why we think that this is maybe coming from the book of Acts, 
right? That Paul's on a missionary journey and he's building a fire and a snake jumps out of the fire and bites him and all the people on the island, they know he's going to die. He's got poison. He's going to die. And yet God protects him. He doesn't die. Of course, the next thing they think is, oh, he's a, he must be a God. And, um, and he, he corrects them and all, and all that. So this would be unintentionally entering harm's way in the course of serving the Lord and doing ministry. The idea is that God can protect you. But even that is not a promise that he always will. Because sometimes precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. He allowed Jesus to be martyred. He allowed Paul and Peter and James and the list goes on and on. So he does allow them to cause to, to fall into harm. So I would say it's occasional protection and that it's about um, unintentionally entering into harm's way in the course of serving the Lord in those contexts. I hope that those those things help you out. I know I threw a lot at you, but that's kind of what I do. Okay, so here we go. Let's, to, let's take the next question. And I'll, I'll let you guys know. So our, our queue is full. I've got 20 questions here from you guys, from the live chat on YouTube. And I'm going to be going through as many of those as I can get to today. So you don't have to continue asking. I know it'll happen because people are still signing on. But just want to make that announcement. All right. Titanium Zeet says, Hi, Pastor Mike. My name is Nick. And I'm about to graduate college. And I'm going to be a missionary to Japan. Any advice you'd give someone just about to start ministry? Thanks. Um, Nick, oh, boy. Uh, I I feel like I'm going to fall short here. Let me give you a few things. This won't be all the things you need to know. Uh, don't be alone. You're going to go out as a missionary to Japan. Don't be alone. Attach yourself to other believers and then make sure that you keep those relationships healthy. Satan will definitely try to come between those relationships and it will. Uh, he'll seek to undermine your whole ministry by undermining your relationships with other people you're serving with. That's huge. I mean, that's absolutely huge. So please don't go alone and build those relationships and build them on grace and stay stay tight with other people. Also, ministry, long-term missions is about long-term goals. It, it's, it's not like a short-term mission trip at all. So you won't necessarily see the kind of quick results that you might be looking for in a short-term mission. You're talking about a labor that's more like, in most cases, years and years of investing into a community and having an impact that you will generally feel is not as big as you wish it was. But take courage when you impact lives, those lives impact lives. And that has an impact for decades and generations to come until Jesus comes back. There are people today who are still being impacted by some missionary from 300 years ago, little known to them. And your ministry is, is about um, patiently, patiently planting seeds and ministering. Those are a couple of things I would encourage you with. Um, I'd also... Um, yeah, I'm just going to leave it at that, Nick. I hope that those things are encouraging for you. So Juliet Knighton says, uh, 1 Corinthians 11 calls women to wear head coverings for prayer and prophesying. We only stopped in the latter half of the 20th century. Thoughts on the topic? Um, Juliet, so this is a passage of scripture in 1 Corinthians 11 that I'm, uh, I'm inclined to say, oh yeah, they don't have to wear head coverings. But in, I'm going to be completely honest here. I don't feel like I can totally justify that. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of on the fence on this, on this text, on, on exactly how I should understand this scripture. And so it's on my list of passages to sit down and spend a lot of time on. And I mean like 30, 40 hours on that one passage, uh, reading, you know, the scholarly literature on it, reading various commentaries on it, and trying to really come to a place where I feel very confident. I've done this with a number of topics in the past, and I'll continue to always be doing this with topics. One day I'll come with a a better response to you on that. And I apologize that uh, I'm just at a lack of my knowledge. So yeah, Jasmine Martin, uh, could you do a, a sound in-depth study of believers deliberate sin, struggling with condemnation? Could I send a video explaining which passages concern me and why my leaders seem to brush them off? So Jasmine, I, <clears throat> um, I'm, I'm not going to ask that you send this video only because I have a host of projects that are, they're all important, including this. This is an important issue. But let me give you one thing to think about. And it's not sound in depth. This is just our Q&A. So forgive me that I'm not able to give, give you more, more of what you're looking for. But here's one thing to consider. <clears throat> Deliberate sin in the Old Testament, how, how it's like presumptuous sin is like something that you're not going to be forgiven for effectively in the Old Testament under the law. Well, in the New Testament, we read that we can be forgiven for the offenses, this is important, that you couldn't be forgiven for under the Old Testament law. That those kinds of deliberate high-handed or presumptuous sins, sinning like full with full knowledge and fully aware and you just did it anyway, that kind of thing that in some cases the law couldn't forgive, that Jesus can forgive. This is part of how Jesus is better than the law. 
That's one thing you really need to know, right? We can be forgiven through Christ for things that you couldn't be forgiven for under the Old Testament law. So don't think that, that those Old Testament passages restrict your forgiveness today. Second thing, Hebrews, when it talks about sinning willfully and that sort of thing, I think it's talking about not just any willful sin, like sin that's willful. I think rather it's talking about having received knowledge of the gospel and intentionally setting that aside and going back to lesser things, um, rejecting the sacrifice of Christ willfully, knowingly. So this is about apostasy, not just committing sin. I think that that's another key thing. So let me give you those two things to think about and you can see which side I lean on with this topic. Um, I hope that helps. Kai will, and I think if you study the Hebrews context um, in uh, Hebrews chapter 10, which I think is the, if I'm remembering right, I think you'll see that that, yeah, oh, look at the whole context of Hebrews. That's, that one's about apostasy, I think. So Kai Williams says, what is a biblical view of entertainment? My tastes include comics, but feel free to explain Lord of the Rings. Because <laughs> um, you know I like Lord of the Rings. That's so funny. Um, so a biblical view of entertainment. Um, that's, you know what? That's a really, really good question. I'd like to sit and spend more time on. Let me just throw out a few things. Um, Laughter is good. Okay, so like let's, foundational truths. Laughter is a good thing. Proverbs says laughter is medicine. It's a, it's a positive, it's a beneficial thing. Uh, there, are, there is a trend in some of the older historical schools of thought where they would actually feel like laughter is bad. Laughter can be bad, but laughter is, and forgive my bluntness, laughter is like sex. It's very good in its proper context. It's very bad out of its proper context. So laughter, where it's it's pure and it's innocent and it's just it's pure, perfectly wonderful and good, but laughter when it's leaning towards um, softening our attitude towards sin, where it turns into scoffing, where it turns into mocking God or mocking biblical truths or or taking high and holy and wonderful things and making them the subject of jokes, I think that can actually be dangerous. And I think that our culture does it a lot, and we see it a lot in our entertainment. And I think that that actually causes spiritual harm. I'm just being honest with you. I think that causes spiritual harm. So what should I do then if I enjoy entertainment that's a mixed bag? Sometimes they have inappropriate humor. Sometimes it's just really funny and lighthearted and good. What do I do? Or, or sometimes it's, it's violence is being displayed on screen, but it's more of like a just kind of fight. Right, And it's not sort of like glorifying wickedness or something. And I think that these are questions that each Christian has to struggle through. It's What we tend to do is we tend to develop convictions and then we want to dump them on everybody. You know, here's what I think I should watch and therefore you should only watch the same things. And I think here's where we have to have a bit of that Romans 14 uh, willingness to give each other space. But here's the high calling no Christian should compromise. Is that your walk with God is truly being sustained while you're enjoying this entertainment. I hope that that helps. In my in my opinion, Lord of the Rings is acceptable to me, right? In in my opinion. But to somebody else it won't be, and they should honor their conscience in that and not mess with it. And so, I hope that that helps, man. Just just know this, you like me want to be entertained all the time. And our desire to be entertained has turn, can turn into a temptation to partake of things that are inappropriate. Um, let me give you one scripture on this before I move on to the next question. Um, let me see. Uh, I'm trying to think of uh, how to find this verse. <laughs> I need to use the search function. It's, uh, it's in Ephesians. It's like Ephesians. Maybe I just need to search for it because I'm blanking on the exact statement of the scripture. Um, Where it, it warns us, this is this is the live stream side. I could just skip this, but I think that it's kind of important. Um, I think it's Ephesians two. Here, I'll let you I'll let you look with me. How's that sound? Ephesians chapter two. I'm I'm thinking it is Ephesians two. Uh, maybe. Okay, but this is the passage where. Um, it talks about how we are we are light. And we are to be light in the world. We're, we're to, oh, there's Ephesians. I was in Ephesians 1. <laughs> and, um, man, I, I, 
Okay, I'm, I'm probably looking right at it and skipping it because I'm live on camera right now. But basically the passage is saying that, that we not only do not want to be partakers of wickedness, but we don't want to be approving of those who are. And that's, what I, that's a verse I think about a lot with entertainment, that I not only want to be a partaker of wickedness, but I don't want to be one who approves of those who are partaking in wickedness. And to me, that's a lot like the entertainment industry. And it is a, a challenge to me. I apologize. I can't think of the verse. Someone's in the live chat's probably already got it. All right. Next question. This is from uh, Dakota Franz. How can I trust manuscripts, especially ones from Alexandria? Uh, Dakota, my answer to you is going to be, please, please, please check out a, a go to my YouTube channel, go to playlists and uh, go to the evidence for the Bible playlist. And you can skip the first, like, I don't know, seven or eight or, or 10 videos and find the first video where I start talking about how we got our Bible, how we get the Old Testament, the New Testament canon, and then especially the, the videos on on vari variants. What you have heard about the Alexandrian text is probably not true. And I, I may seem like I'm assuming a lot about you, and I don't mean to, but I've had these conversations a lot. And when you say, how can I trust manuscripts from Alexandria? That's not really how it works. So please go and check out that content. Um, when I, I used to be a little bit conspiratorial. I thought like I, I was, I leaned slightly King James only. Like a lot of Calvary Chapel guys did, right? Um, that was just how we were sort of brought up. And I decided to do a research project on it and I dug really deep on this topic and I was delighted, <laughs> delighted to find out that we have a number of great translations and that the, the stuff coming from the King James only crowd where they try to demonize the NIV and demonize every other Bible translation is, is, uh, is bearing false witness. I'm not kidding here. Bearing, actually bearing false witness. It's deceitful and lying. Um, it's, it's also just based on misinformation. And as you study it deeply, you go, oh, thank God. It's not, the King James isn't the only trustworthy Bible out there. I'm like grateful for that. Uh, God has preserved his word. Check out my evidence for the Bible series. All right, Tyler Smith says, my friend recently said she still feels the presence of her dead loved one. What is the biblical and loving response to this? I don't know if you even can. I mean, some people, um, so it's like someone has like a, a splinter, but in order to get to the splinter, you have to hurt a wound. Okay, so she still feels the presence of her dead loved one. I'm concerned about that because that means that she may be trying to communicate with the dead, which is something that the, the Old Testament soundly condemns over and over again. It's just constantly condemned. We see no examples of of praying to dead people in the New Testament as well. The consistent biblical... And now, God condemns... Get this, it's not just the law. God condemns pagan nations for trying to be contacting the dead. It's something that is, is condemned. And uh, there's more we could talk about all that. This is something that we should not be partaking of and shouldn't be messing with. And part of the reason is because you're probably not contacting the dead. If you are contacting, you're opening yourself up to whatever spirit might want to speak to you. And if it's not going to be God, what are you opening yourself up to? That's my concern and my fear. I don't know if your friend would listen to that and say, maybe what you feel is your love for them. Maybe what you feel is, is, is your, your, um, your appreciation of them, your memories of them. But can I at least encourage you not to try to go down that road of contacting the dead and maybe share some Old Testament scriptures about that with her? And if she's not a Christian, this is a secondary issue. She needs to know about Jesus. But I, I don't think there's a real, real room for that in Christianity. Recently, I've been studying the history of these things, and it seems like it cropped up pretty early in church history, especially in the Eastern church. And I think that this is just the result of the, the, um, the church interacting with the, the Greek and Eastern world. I, I just not so much Greek as it is the Eastern church, like Constantinople and all that. I think that it started really with them interacting with that. So then the traditions of man start quickly entering in. As they as they become you know pagans become Christians and they carry some of their stuff with them, that's my thought. Okay, so here's uh, question number nine. Um, says I grew up a Christian, but now after trials causing me to turn to God in prayer, I have changed love towards God and others. Was there a time where I may not have actually been saved? Oh, that's a. I mean. Frankly, I don't know you and I don't know anything about your history. So all I can speak to is possibilities, right? And and then I probably won't help much. It's possible you weren't saved. And then when this sort of like spiritual renewal happened, that was actually when you got saved. It's possible you were saved and you were just a really weak Christian and who was not 
really healthy, but you were still saved. And that this time has brought you into a, such a healthier place that now you're, you're sensing that spiritual vitality and you're walking in the spirit more and you're like, wow, man, what was going on before? But have I helped you? Probably not. Um, let me just say this, that it may not matter that much. The important thing is that you know now that you are in Christ and that you continue seeking him and walking with him. So I apologize. These, these, those kinds of questions I find very difficult to, uh, to get answers for people on. Okay, well, let's look at the next one. Uh, and again, our, Q, our Q&A is closed. I'm, I'm answering questions you guys have already asked. And um, you don't, don't, don't ask more because I won't be able to get to them and I don't want to disappoint you. Rohan Samuel says, Hello, Brother Mike. If a person is genuinely suffering from gender dysphoria and as a result dresses as a woman or a man, are they living in sin and what can they do to overcome gender dysphoria? I mean, that's a, that's a, living in sin is a, is, a, is a big phrase to use there. Let me say this. Some of the, I, I don't want to have too blanket of a term here. I want to unpack the issue a little more carefully. So they're suffering from gender dysphoria, which is the idea that even though they're, say, a man, they really want to be a woman. They think of themselves as a, they like the idea of being a woman, all those kinds of things instead or vice versa. And so first off, that is a, they're struggling with a false belief, right? That, that's, a, that's kind of like a self-deception that's happening there. And I'm very opposed to them dressing as a woman for their sake because them feeding this delusion is not healthy. So, I mean, there's people, for instance, and I'm going to use an extreme example. An extreme example is not the same at all, but only to draw out a point. So I'm not comparing it. I'm rather trying to make a principle. So there are people who really feel that they are an animal, that they identify more with being a, a wolf or a dog or you name the animal, than they do being a human. Now, there may be a ton of reasons why. There may be all kinds of weird psychological things going on. There may be, maybe it's just a, a, a fantasy that turned into an obsession. Maybe there's something wrong with the brain. I don't know. I don't know. And it's not, I don't need to know. But do I want that person to go around and pretend to be a wolf? They go and they eat raw food and they, they growl and they grunt and they don't talk to people anymore and they start to behave like that animal. I mean, this is, I'm using an extreme example here because it's obvious that I don't want to feed that. And, and if you have a worldview that says like, oh yeah, why not? Then that's because you just don't have a Christian worldview. You don't think that people actually have a design and a purpose and that there's a reason for your existence and you're, you're now throwing it to the garbage and, and living in a deception in the wolf example. So I, I would not encourage them to do that. So for, for the sake of that person, I'd realize as soon as they start pretending to be a wolf, it's going to reinforce these delusions even more and it will cause even more problems. So I tend to think that, yeah, that's not healthy for the person. And our culture is so supportive of transgender identity stuff that we're causing people harm. Like we're hurting them in the name of loving them. And this is, of course, what the world does often. So my encouragement would be, for your own sake, don't do things that feed your dysphoria. Do things that help you overcome it. Not weird things, not weird like electroshock therapy and insane behaviors, but do healthy, positive things to help. Now, there's another issue of potential sin, which is if I go around pretending to be a woman when I'm a man, am I not perpetrating a deception on my brothers and sisters in the world? And the answer is, yeah, I'm actually creating a, a false identity that I'm trying to get them to believe or pretend and I'm per perpetrating a deception. So there's a sense in which I'm living in a deceptive, a, a self-deceiving mode and an others-deceiving mode. And so there's a sense in which that's a sinful, ongoing sinful behavior. So yeah, and that, that would be from the Christian worldview. That, that's how I think we should understand those things. I think that's the right and true way to understand those things. And that um, just saying living in sin is too generic and it won't land because people don't even begin to think clearly about these issues today, right? That's very, they're very emotional. It's very much about, you know, you're not accepting me, you're not approving of me. And it's like, well, no, I'm, I, I, I approve of you doing things that are healthy and true, <laughs> you know? And we have to kind of try to reframe it a bit. Um, what can people do to overcome gender dysphoria? I'm sure there's a lot of things they can do. I don't, I don't have, I'm not the guru of that. Um, trying to believe whatsoever things are true. That's an intentional thing to um, try to accept and embrace the identity God's given you. Also to, to tear down some false, overly masculine understandings of what it means to be a man or overly feminine understandings of what it means to be a woman. Because frequently people with gender dysphoria do have these 
real extreme. I'm just speaking colloquially here in my experience. They have these very extreme versions of masculine and feminine. So when they imitate the other side, they usually do so in a way that men aren't even that masculine. <laughs> Women aren't even that feminine. And so there's these, there's just these weird ideas going on. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't have the, all the fixes, but I do think it doesn't help to feed the deception. All right. Bramble A has a question. Thanks, Mike, for your wonderful videos. Could you please explain the parable of the 10 virgins in Matthew 25? What is the oil? Some said it's the Torah, others, the Holy Spirit. Can you help? Thank you. Um, that's a good question. And it's been a long time. I mean, it really has been a long time since I looked at the parable of the 10 virgins. Let me just read it with you guys. This is healthy for us regardless. And I will see if I have maybe a few thoughts to share with you as I try to remember uh, the last time I really studied this passage, which is a while ago. Okay, the 10, uh, the 10 virgins here. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like, and, and, and now parables, Jesus tells parables. These are uh, stories that are meant to illustrate, they're made up stories, meant to illustrate truths about usually the future kingdom, usually the, the kingdom of God. So the, uh, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. So it's not a true story. It's a, it's a made up story to get a point across. So five foolish, five wise. For when the foolish took their lamps and they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, and that's key in the passage, by the way, the bridegroom is delayed. This is why they don't have enough oil. They weren't planning on a long wait. Okay, that's key in how we interpret this, this uh, parable. They all became drowsy and slept, but at midnight there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. So the, the, the nature of them trying to ask for someone else's oil is like, it doesn't work that way. Like if we give you our oil, we'll both, we'll all run out. So they're not just being stingy. They're just saying, we'll all run out, which is interesting. So you have to, only you can get oil for your lamp. Can't get it from someone else. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. Shaboom. You could hear it closing in the parable. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore. Here's the application of the parable. For you know, uh, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So, I think that the basic flow of the parable, it seems clear to me that it's about persevering in your, um, in your devotion to the coming kingdom of God so that you do not like get lazy and you're living in this world and you're living a worldly life and you're not really worried and caring and concerning and seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You are earthly minded, not heavenly minded. You are temporally minded, not eternally minded. I think that that's the main thrust. So the lack of oil is in that context. Whatever oil is, it has to do with not being devoted to the coming kingdom. But you're living in this world to live in this world. And then you think, well, whenever Jesus comes, he'll swoop me up. I'll be fine. You know, I, I'm not really living for him. So what's oil? Oh, the, the best thing I can think to do is to uh, tie this into Jesus saying that we need to be lights in the dark. Um, there are other connections. Jesus saying, you know, be a, you're, you're the light of the world. And so the, the sense in, is that they were aware of the coming of Christ, but they weren't prepared for the coming of Christ. They expected it. They knew it was coming, but they weren't really part of being a light in the world. They were just part of the world, hoping that they would be accepted into the kingdom. And he says, I don't know you. Like, I don't even know you. There is no real relationship here. So they were uh, Christians in name only, not in genuineness. That would be how I'd apply it today. So in that sense, the oil is the oil, the Holy Spirit. Well, I mean, if you're truly a Christian, you do have the Holy Spirit. So I could draw that parallel and that's fair theologically. Oil is also connected to the Holy Spirit in Zechariah. So we read about the trees and the oil and that is definitely connected to the Holy Spirit. Okay. So there are, that's a fair connection to make and that may well be true. It definitely is about genuine um, relationship with Christ, living for his kingdom in this world. And your hope is heaven. And that's why you have extra oil because you know it's a long wait. I'm not just a Christian because I went to camp and there I had a great experience and then nothing for 20 years. And I'm thinking I'll still get saved. I had my camp experience. Well, maybe you're the, you're the, uh, 
you're the virgin with no oil. No, I'm, I want to be the believer who knows who, who, who he belongs to, who his, whose kingdom he is living for, and who he is serving in this world. Uh, there's my, my quick <laughs> teaching on that. I hope that it's helpful. Now, Darren Pyle, uh, Plies, Darren P. Plies says, what's your take on Jonathan Kahn and his books? Oh, you know, I, I have never read him, and I've never even listened to one of his things. I've seen, like, YouTube thumbnails, Jonathan Kahn. I'm trying to remember what he teaches on. I don't even remember. So sorry, Darren, I have no nothing for you. Quickest answer ever. Uh, Mike Winger, this is Blake asking, so what is the significance of Jesus' sacrifice being done through the eternal spirit? Was Jesus separated from the Father? Um, no, I mean, okay, so let's go to the verse that you're referring to. Um I think it's in Hebrews. Yeah, Hebrews 9. Let's go there. Here we go. Okay. Um, okay, so if the blood of if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, let me explain that briefly. <laughs> Verse 13. He's saying if the Old Testament law does some physical benefit to cleanliness for the, the Jews, and these are things they did in the law. They had the blood and goats and they had the sprinkling of defiled persons, the ashes of a heifer. That was like this special water they would make, kind of like soap. And um, interestingly enough, God gave them a, prescri a prescription for soap in the Old Testament law, it appears. Um, so talk about, talk about uh, sanct uh, sanitation. And uh, they sanctify for the pur purification of the flesh. If that's true of the Old Testament law, how much more, verse 14, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So I think the actual contrast here is you've got the outward cleansing of the law, the inward cleansing of Christ. The outward cleansing is about sprinkling and washing all these outward applications of the law and its sort of uh, washings of the under like in Leviticus and stuff. But Jesus, it's internal, and part of the way of showing it's internal is um, the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish. He was a actual pure internally holy offering. Why does it say through the eternal spirit? I think it's because he's trying to, to internalize the sacrifice of Christ. It was not only a physical offering, but he was an internal um, a, 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 there was a wholeness in Christ's offering, physical and spiritual. And that applies into you in not just physical cleansing, but in spiritual cleansing in that your conscience is cleansed from dead works to serve the living God. So your question is about if Jesus offer, had to offer himself through the spirit, does that mean he had to offer himself through the spirit because there's this like separation? So like here's God the Father, here's God the Spirit, here's God the Son, and the Son can't go to the Father directly, so he has to go through the spirit. I, I don't think that this is a... Jesus here, the Spirit here, the Father here kind of scenario. I think that it's really just about the, the, um, the fact that Jesus, what he does involves his, his eternal Spirit, which is also connected to the Holy Spirit, which is also connected to the Father. Right? He said, I'm in the Father, the Father's in me. So I just think this isn't related to your question. I think we're trying to answer a theological question that this passage is not trying to address. That would be my short answer. I, I hope that I helped with that. Um, I feel like it may, I could have made it more clear somehow. Uh, James M., he asks, what is your interpretation of John 6.44? Let me go back to the homepage there. John 6.44, what is the drawing referred to here? Ah, James is either a Calvinist or has been interacting with Calvinists. So John 6.44, this is like probably the chief passage. If I ever do another video on Calvinism, it's got to be on John 6. Um, it's not really my focus. It might be like five years from now. I don't know. But I, I'm aware that this would be a great topic to cover because it's a, it's, a, it's a real central passage on Calvinism and it's one I haven't dealt with in great detail. So here's a brief response that admittedly is insufficient, all right? So if Dr. James White wants to take this video and do a commentary on it in his dividing line or, uh, or you know, um, uh, what's it called? The, um, the stream when he, when he does the reformed content. Oh, I totally blink on it. Anyway, I've seen it a ton of times. Anyhow, you know, Dr. White wants to do that don't. This is not my full answer. I know, I know you'll have a bunch of pushback. But my thought is this. Uh, when you say, when Jesus says, um, put it on screen for you. When Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. 
this is taken as um, a connected to irresistible grace in Calvinism. So when God draws you, you come. And not only can you not come unless the Father draws you, they'll add to it this other verse here later where it says that everyone who has learned, uh, heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Well, so you, you have the two sides of, of, of total depravity. You can't come unless he draws you because you're totally depraved. And you have irresistible grace because everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So all those who do come, they have learned from the Father. So there's a, there's a, there's a here's what you can't do and here's what you can't not do. <laughs> so I don't think that's the context of John. And here's my short answer. What I think gives us the reason why I generally don't go with the Calvinist interpretation of this passage is that in the Gospel of John, Jesus isn't talking about um, unregenerate sinners and how they become regenerate and what is the ordo salutis and all that kind of stuff. Like that's not the context in John. In John, as you go even to the beginning of John, you'll see this. Well, let me explain it and then I'll, then I'll take you there to John 1. In John, the context is that God is coming to his people whom he has been preaching to and they have already been responding of their own will to the message that God has delivered. And the way they respond to Jesus, this is key, and I know it's a challenging idea for some, but the way they respond to Jesus is dictated by the way they've already responded to what God has already revealed. Because he's not going to the non-believers, the pagans, he's going to the Jews. So to build this case, let me just go to John 1. And so... Um, So yeah, he came to his own, that's the Jews, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him, right? But all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Okay, that, that, that's consistent with like a, a non-Calvinist interpretation of this passage, but, but there's more. Um, uh, let me find the passage here. Uh, I must have skipped it. Boy, this is the problem of doing things off the cuff. I'm trying to go off of, I literally haven't looked at this in like three years. So I'm trying to remember the, the, reason, the reasoning I had here. If you survey through John, you'll see a consistent message, right? Uh, that true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, though the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. I guess I'll just sit on that for now. I'm trying to remember there's more. Um, throughout John, though, in John 1, you'll see it in other passages in John 5. It's in John 5 and it's in John 6 that Jesus is saying they're not going to listen to him because they haven't been listening to the Father this whole time. So he's not saying when he says in John 6, um, either God draws you effectually in the Calvinist sense, he, he regenerates you and then you come, or he doesn't regenerate you and you can't come. Instead, I think the drawing of the Father is the preaching of the Old Testament the prophets and the preparation for Christ that the Jews have received. And if they've accepted this and they've heard and learned from the Father and they've responded to him, they will naturally accept and respond to Jesus. And if they have been rejecting this, hardening their hearts, twisting the scriptures, putting their own traditions in the, in the way to get around them, then they're naturally going to reject Jesus because they've already been rejecting the Father. So in, later in John, when Jesus says, uh, you know, you, if, if you believe Moses, you'd believe in me because he wrote of me. See, he's showing that they've already rejected Moses. That's why they're rejecting him. This is about the Jews rejecting Jesus. It is not about Calvinism. That's my short answer, which admittedly, as they all should, should be longer. Uh, Sarah Perman says, school bus driver, struggling with sharing Jesus against the policy of my school versus obeying God to spread the gospel. What say you? <laughs> um, well, I appreciate the Lord of the Rings reference. <laughs> but uh, Sarah, I don't know. Um, I don't know. I, 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 I wrestle with that kind of question myself. Um, do, you, do you just share in certain scenarios? Do you share at certain points? Do you try to like when you're and you have a break, you clock off or something like that? Do you find subtle ways to share it as a kid's leaving? You're like, God bless you. Or, or, or what, do you, what do you do with this? Sarah, this is a good question. Um, here's what I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask for your guys' help with this. As Sarah's trying to wrestle with this, how the, the question isn't just, is she willing to lose her job to, to share the gospel? That's an easy question. The answer is yes. The question is, how does God want you to handle situations where, say, you are employed 
to do a certain task. And while you're, you're being paid by the hour to do that task, is it okay to do things that you know your employer doesn't want to represent them, your employer doesn't want you to be spending your time on, and that could cause them to get into lawsuits and all those sorts of things? Should you be drawing them into all those troubles in order to share the gospel? Or can you find another way to do it? I don't know the right answer to this question. So here's how you guys can help. In the comment section, um, especially on the permanent video, because there'll be even more comments there, type Sarah Perman, P-E-R-M-A-N. That'll be the beginning of your comment. You say Sarah Perman, and then give her your advice there. And we'll look at that and we'll consider it. Maybe we'll come back to this later. James has a question. He says, do you believe a person can lose salvation? Um, my answer on that, James, and I do get this question quite a lot, is I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure, and it doesn't matter, uh, but but let me let me break into three different possibilities. One, you can sin so much you lose your salvation. I'm pretty confident that's not true. I'm inclined to think that's very much not true for, because of lots of scripture. Number two, you apostatize and thereby willfully choose to to give to depart from Christ. I'm more open to that being a possibility. Um, also, some would say that that willful and open and constant sin might incline one towards apostasy, but the cause of the loss of salvation would be the apostasy. I reject Jesus, um, or I'm, I'm in darkness. I no longer believe because I've just gone into that place spiritually. I'm, I'm, I don't totally rule that out. I'm not sure. Uh, the third option is, you, you, you know, once saved, always saved. As soon as you get saved, you cannot lose your salvation under any way, shape, or form. And... I guess if I was to say what I lean towards, it's it's, it's the middle it's the middle option. Um, but I should do a, a whole research study on this topic one day. It is actually, as you really read a lot of stuff on it, it actually gets to be a very complicated issue before it gets simple. And that's what re research projects I do are for. It's to go deep and complicated into the issue and then come out with it as, as thoroughly answered and simple as possible. Okay, John Engler said, oh, and let me just add this. If someone today is not saved, it doesn't actually matter that much whether they lost it or never had it to begin with. What matters is that right now they need Jesus Christ. Right now you need to give your life to Christ and trust in Christ. And somebody out there is listening and they're like, well, I think I lost my salvation and I think then probably God doesn't want me. You're just making up dumb excuses to not put your faith and trust in Christ. Like, stop. Like, here you are driving towards a cliff and there is, you know, someone reaching out saying, I will save you from this. And you're like, well, I don't really know that you really want to. <laughs> um, this is how self-deceiving sin is that we justify our own continued rebellion against God sometimes acting like God wants us to that's how deceived we can be so yeah John Engler has a question are tongues overrated I grew up hearing that tongues were like a special status symbol to give you better access to God but is this biblical um, definitely not biblical at all tongues in some cases are radically overrated radically overrated. And Paul gets at this in 1 Corinthians. You know the passage. You already know where I'm going to take you. Let's go there. I'm going to let Paul answer for you. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clangy cymbal. Clanging cymbal. This is not gongs like, oh, it's a nice gong. No, it's, imagine walking through and just banging on things. That's what you are if you have tongues without love. Doesn't matter. Your tongues don't matter. So, we're to pursue the more excellent things. Now, he goes on and talks about prophecy and all these other things. And he's like, love is the chief. Love is the highest thing. You know what the, you know, this, it's not even about a status symbol. It's about honoring Christ. Walk in love. Let that be your obsession. Let that be your, your thing that you seek. But it's also true that Paul talks about um, the more important gifts, even amongst the spiritual gifts. And he doesn't list tongues as the most important at all. In fact, he actually limits the use of tongues in 1 Corinthians 14. And he suggests if you're speaking in tongues and it's in a gathering and no one's interpreting, then stop and keep it between you and God. So he's actually devaluing the status symbol of tongues. He's like, you know, if it's just if it's just you, so whole rooms of people all speaking in tongues, not a biblical thing. He says if an unbeliever comes in or someone uninformed, that is a believer who doesn't understand or trust in the gift of tongues, they're going to think you guys are crazy. And what is the world filled with? People thinking that these tongues-obsessed groups are crazy. Like, read 1 Corinthians 14. It, it actually applies to you. Stop trying to get around it. If you're that spiritual, then you will care what the inspired word of God says about the spiritual gifts. I'm getting on my hobby horse. So um, 1 Corinthians 14 says that. But it also, Paul, in addition to that, let me give you a third thing. 
he suggests that prophecy is better than tongues because someone who speaks in tongues, they speak to themselves and the Lord, right? But someone who prophesies speaks edification to the whole church. So he's, he's saying, if you can speak it in the language of the people around you, that is way better than speaking in a language that nobody knows. In other words, yes, groups that you're talking about that um, have a special status symbol attached to tongues, whether they think it proves salvation or anything like that, this is all unbiblical and tongues is not to be the center of the spiritual activity of the church. Uh, even for people like me who believe that the gifts of the spirit are still valid. Lassie uh, Kleiman says this, and I'm almost done just so you guys know, we're gonna, we've got like three minutes left and I'm, I'm doing good. I'm at question 18 because I only get 20. Um, so some say not everyone can go to heaven uh, because then heaven would be spoiled because of bad people. Others say by believing on Jesus, anyone can go to heaven. Can these two be reconciled? I think they're reconciled by this, that everyone who believes in Christ, who goes to heaven, isn't going to be a bad person. You're, you're given a new life. You're given a, a new heart. You're given uh, the, the removal of the flesh and the full connection of yourself with the Holy Spirit so that now, at this point, you won't sin. So even if, in the extreme example, Hitler, on his deathbed, had truly repented and professed faith in Christ and got saved, when you saw him in heaven, he would not be Hitler in heaven. He'd be a new creation in Christ. He'd be a new man who... Uh, hated all the old stuff, hated all the old things, saw that they were all paid for by Jesus on the cross and that he is now renewed and he would never do harm like that again. So everyone who's in Christ is a new creation and then heaven will be populated by love and grace and joy and mercy and all the fruits of the Holy Spirit because being united to Christ means being transformed. And that final transformation comes when we get uh, rid of this flesh and get new glorified bodies. So... I think that is the, I think Jesus is the reconciliation. Jesus is how we can have a heaven populated with people who are no longer bad. Now, without Jesus, we're all bad and we're going to ruin heaven. No matter how good, you know, you know, bad people can ruin Disneyland, so to speak. It's all, it all can go bad because of the people. And God fixes that through the regeneration that we get in faith in Christ. Um, Let's see. Um, Eddie Vasquez asks, how do you properly repent for a sin? Um, I think that, you know, just to formalize it, I think there's a uh, an admission that the sin is wrong, a expressed sorrow, grief over having committed the sin, and then the fruits of repentance would be distancing yourself from that thing, whether it's trying to bring restitution or whatever else. Those are the next steps that you take where you where you do that. Now, um, I know there's a lot more to that. And if you're, if you're like, I'm, you know, for many believers, you're, most believers, you're like, there's sins that I still struggle with on a daily basis. And I think that you should be just frequently repenting of those things. Repent. The moment, the moment it happens, stop and say, you know what? That was wrong. I'm sorry, Lord. I want to have my heart and mind focused upon you right now. I trust in the grace of Christ to forgive me for that, but I don't want to continue in it. And then move forward. And the next thing you do is a good thing, you know, um, to put it simply. Okay, even though we're running out of time, look, I've got one question left. I'm going to go like two minutes over here. So Josh Hodge says, uh, hello, Pastor Mike. God bless. Uh, thank you. It is a symptom of being indwelt by the Holy Spirit to have a more conscientious acknowledgement of God's presence unto repentance of sins? I, I honestly am not sure I understand the last part of that question. A more conscientious acknowledgement of God's presence unto repentance of sins? Are you suggesting that maybe... Be a symptom of being, you know, into what by the Spirit is, I'm aware of my sin and I feel driven to repent of it. Um, that could be, that could be a, a symptom of the, you know, being aware of the Holy Spirit, or or could even be a someone who's not saved who is just God's working on. I, I suppose it could be. I'm not sure that I can help you too much there. Um, if you want to look at symptoms of being indwelt by the Spirit, then you should go to a few things in in the book of Galatians and Romans. In Galatians, we have the fruit of the Spirit. So you look for love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. Those are fruits of the Spirit and may represent that. In Romans 8, we read that um, by the Spirit that we're indwelt by, we cry out, Abba, Father, and his Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. So there's a sense, an inter and this is a purely internal thing. I can't show it to you. There's a sense of an awareness of my relationship with God 
that I'm being given by the Holy Spirit, I'm, I'm able to connect with God and have a relationship. Not that this can't be harmed or, or that you can't go through doubts or questions about it or something, but that is a um, symptom of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's that acknowledgement, that awareness that you're a child of God. So there you go. There's a couple things for you to look at. Um, I hope this guy's, this has been helpful for you. Just a reminder, if you have suggestions for what I should call this Friday, should I just call it the Friday Q&A? Um, should we call it a bunch of other uh, names I've had suggested based on my last name being Winger? <laughs> About winging it and stuff. Um, but it but it should be something that on a search engine, when people first see this video pop up, they'll be like, oh, that I wonder what that is. You know, and it makes them inclined to click it, not like clickbait, but just to draw natural interest. And then that will increase the reach of the ministry. That's the goal. You get, you let me know your ideas. <clears throat> and I will see you guys Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. We're going to be doing the uh, Mark series. And then on Wednesday, I have a video dropping occasionally. On Wednesdays, I'll just throw other videos, research projects, things I'm doing will happen on Wednesdays sometimes. And then next Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Standard. See you guys. All right. Thank you. God bless you.